All right, it's 2023. We've all engaged with the internet by, in some capacity by now, yeah? I mean, I, some of you are still holding on to your AOL emails, but for the most of us, we've moved on. We know how to log into Facebook. We know how to Google things. Most of us have Instagram or TikToks, um, and we've all watched a YouTube video. So if I share with you this icon, you probably know what it means, yeah? It means, the same, it means the same things as these other icons. Depending upon what platform you're on, it's the share icon. You hit this button when you come across something that you want to send to someone else. My son sends me memes, my mom sends me inspirational videos about parenting, and my brother sends me funny videos of kids getting hurt, like this one. Oh, there's a You're going to pull one up. You're just running faster than mommy. Yes. Fast. <laughs> In fact, did you know that the three most watched videos of 2022 on TikTok were a video of a chocolate, chocolate giraffe, a squirrel named Squishy, and an interview with a kid about how much he loves corn. Millions of people watch these videos, millions. Millions, sh millions shared them with their friends. And now here's what I've learned in my 39 years of life is that humans love to share things. And not just the funny stuff, think about it. We also share stories of justice, or we share things that might be helpful to know, or even uh, we value sharing a painful journey that we've experienced and hope that someone can find um, some comfort in our story. Or we share our pictures from our vacations or our weekends. But what about what we believe? Oh, we also love to share any political or religious propaganda that makes us feel like we chose the winning side and makes the other side feel like losers. But I think that's more coming from a place of power than a place of belief. I'd actually argue that for most of us, it's more natural to share what we've experienced, like, hey, check out this video I just saw or, or check out this restaurant I just ate at. Or let me tell you about this thing that just happened to me. It's, it's more easy, it's easier for us to share about our experiences um, than to share what we believe about something, especially what we believe about God. And I think it's because experiences can't be questioned and aren't as vulnerable to doubt like our beliefs can be. Think about it. If you just watched the latest Avatar movie and thought this was the best movie you've ever seen, I could come in, and I would, and be like, actually, it's kind of long and kind of boring. Um, but you know how you felt when you watched it. You know it changed your life. The, the opinion of uh, doesn't change, my opinion doesn't change how you felt. But if after watching Avatar, you watched it and said, I believe Avatar will finally inspire change in humanity to help people finally see the dangers in colonization, I would whip out any textbook from my undergrad and point to all the different instances where no, we will continue to do this. That's just humans. And then I think that negative interaction might then prevent you from sharing your belief in Avatar again because I, I doubted something in it. Look, uh, as we start this new series called Focus, we're going to be asking you to focus on the things that are unique to Harbor Covenant, things that we value, things that drive our mission, things that inform how we relate to each other. And the first thing we are asking you to focus on is our first organizing principle, reaching people for Christ. Now, this principle is something we have in common with other evangelical churches across America. This principle is birthed out of a desire that we have to share the good news of the gospel with others. The good news that God is restoring us and restoring our communities. It comes from this desire to share what we've experienced with others so that they can experience it too. Now, there's a Greek word for this sharing, this good news. Michael mentioned it actually a couple weeks ago. If anyone remembers, it is euangelion. 
It means good news. Uh, it's where we get the word evangelical. It sounds the same, yeah? To be evangelical at its core means to be a person of good news. And when evangelicals evangelize or share the good news, they're basically like good newsing other people. They just go around and good news other people. And if you consider yourself an evangelical, you are a good newser. And that's something we're okay with, right? We established that. Humans actually love to share good news with other people. Hey, good news, this video will make you laugh. Hey, good news, I found this great recipe for chicken parm. Hey, good news, and so on and so on. So that's why I want to focus on this principle so that we get it right. Frankly, the word evangelical in America has become so polarizing that I want to explore that a little bit this morning for sure. Um, as a church that is part of the Evangelical Covenant Church, I struggle with knowing that the word, that that word alone, evangelical, causes problems for a lot of people. However, while the word might cause problems, we don't want to abandon our desire to be good newsers, and that's why we've made Reaching People for Christ one of our organizing principles. We want to share the good news of, God of God's reconciliation with others, not just because we believe in it, but because we have experienced it as well. And if you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, this sermon is just for people who already believe in Jesus. No, that's not the case. This is a great moment for you to hear what God has done for you, because I want to challenge all of us listening to hear for the first time or the millionth time what God has done for you. So let's dig into why this is one of our organizing principles. This principle is actually birthed out of one of our denominations affirmations. It's for the necessity of new birth. Uh, the ECC affirms, I'll, I'll quote them, says, The Apostle Paul wrote, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. New birth in Christ means committing ourselves to him and receiving forgiveness, acceptance, and eternal life. It means being alive in Christ, and this life has the qualities of love and righteousness, joy and peace. New birth is only the beginning. Growing to maturity in Christ is a lifelong process for both individuals and communities of believers. And here's the main part. God forms and transforms us, and it is through people transformed by Christ that God transforms the world. That is why our denomination wants to reach people for Christ. That's why we, that's why we have that principle as well, because we believe when people experience the love of God in their life, they are transformed, and when people change, the world changes. And how many of us would love to see some part of the world change for the better and reflect qualities of love and righteousness and joy and peace? Even just a little bit of it. Now, now we have the principle reaching people for Christ because we are a part of a larger group of churches that longs to see the world transformed because of stories that we read about God in the Bible. So if some of you are wondering, hey, when's he going to do the Bible stuff? Here's the Bible stuff. Paul wrote something in 2 Corinthians 5 um, that's been pretty instructional for evangelicals, and I'll read it for you. He says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God, has that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. From this passage and other passages in the Bible, we develop some important theology and ideology. And one of the first ones is here in verse 16, and it's this idea that Christ's love is compelling. I'm actually not a fan of that translation. The word there in the Greek actually means more like to hold together. And I like that a bit more. Um, But the word compels, I think, illustrates the intensity that we're held together, almost in a way where, yeah, we have to deal with it. Almost like when I get a hug and I don't want it and I'm just being held, I'm like, oh yeah, we're doing this now. Um, Christ's love holds us together in a compelling way. Because as Paul says in verse 15, that he's convinced that it's Christ's love that saves people from themselves. When the world is falling apart and even on a death spiral, it's Christ's love that not only stops that spiral, but holds it together. And in verse 17, he actually makes something completely new out of you. I think of those clamps that carpenters use to hold together like individual pieces of wood um, that would just kind of fall apart until the glue between them is strong enough to stick. They're, they're allowed to be held together properly. Uh, when allowed to be held together properly, the two separate pieces of wood actually become something completely new altogether. And Paul believes that without this holding together, your life unravels. And maybe that's what you're feeling. Your life is marked by the mistakes of your life and the consequences that, uh, that those have had on you and those around you. But Paul believes, and then mentions in verse 19, that when Christ's love holds you together, you aren't defined by those mistakes and those sins anymore. In fact, you don't even begin to look like your old self. And now, holy moly, if that isn't good news, then I don't know what is. That someone who feels like their life is unraveling um, now is secure. That's, that's great news. And the third idea uh, from this verse is, is that new life is marked by reconciliation. Not power, not wealth, not fame, not success, but reconciliation. Verse 21 describes us as broken, and our relationship with God, with the God who made us and loves us, is suffering, but Christ's love has you and me put back together and reconciled in that relationship. Hey, good news, you've been made right again. And then in verse 20, this good news kind of rises to its natural conclusion for Paul. He's obviously experienced this reconciliation, and he's, he's reaching out to other people of what Christ has done in him so that Christ might do it for them in, as well. Hey, good news, God loves you. Like, he really loves you. He doesn't hold your mistakes against you, but instead he just holds you together. And it's at this core is what we mean by when we want to reach people for Christ. It's that we want to express the love that God has for humans to other humans. So we're a church that wants to focus on this. We want to do it with with every opportunity we get, not just organizationally, but individually. And I'm asking you to make this organizing principle of our church one of your organizing principles as well. Will you be someone who expresses God's love for humans to other humans by what you say and what you don't say? by what you do and what you don't do, and good Lord Jesus, by what you post and what you don't post. But I want to go back to this idea of sharing something because you've, you've personally experienced it versus sharing something because it's a belief of your faith that you feel like you have to share. Here's what I mean. Since I accepted a job here at Harbor Cove in late 2014, and up until this last season, I've spent the last seven plus years 
experiencing the Seattle Seahawks beat the San Francisco 49ers. In fact, in that time frame, the Hawks and the Niners have played 16 times, and 14 of those times, the Seattle Seahawks have beat the 49ers. Sometimes by like blowouts, sometimes by like late magic wins. But I stand here today in front of you and God and anyone else watching this video that I am probably more a bigger believer that the Seahawks can actually win a football game than most Seahawks fans. Why? Because I've experienced losing to y'all so much. It's frustrating. Uh, so much so that when the Seahawks are doing their usual thing, like they're down by 10 with like eight minutes or so left to play in the game, and all you Hawks fans give up and give up hope, and I, I, I find myself being the only one saying, look, good news, you're gonna get the win you always have. Why? Because I've experienced losing to the Seahawks so much, so much so that when the Seahawks are doing their thing, they're usually down by like 10 with eight minutes left to go, um, and all the fans have given up, I find myself being the only one saying, hey, good news, you're gonna win this game because that's what your cockroaches usually do anyways. And I don't believe, uh, I don't just believe the Seahawks can win, I've experienced it. People connect with you more when you share your experience and not with what you just believe. And I think people connect with God more when you share your experience with him and not just what you believe about him. So if we're gonna focus on reaching people for Christ or expressing God's love for humans to other humans, each of us should be able to identify first where we have felt compelled by God's love ourselves. So when have you felt compelled by God's love, a love that has held you together? When was the last time? I want to look at another story from the Bible, and it's definitely not um, a well-known story. But interestingly enough, Michael actually mentioned it in his sermon last week, which is pretty wild. So here we go. This is from 2 Kings chapter 6. starts in verse 24. It's kind of a story, so we'll kind of break and go through it. It says, Sometime later, um, Ben-Hadad king of Aram mobilized his entire army and marched up to lay siege to Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of Israel, um, and the, uh, the Aramean army uh, did not like them and wanted to take it over. So there's this siege is happening. Verse 25, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for eight shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods, which is dove's poop, for five shekels. So a little history lesson here. Um, on siege warfare. Um, there aren't, remember, there aren't really tanks or explosives or rockets at this point in history, just swords and horses and bow and arrows, probably really tall ladders, I don't know. Um, and if you could build a wall high enough and all the way around your city, uh, you were generally pretty protected, unless someone wanted to besiege your city. To siege a city, armies would surround and blockade the city and camp out. And if they had the tools to try to break down the walls or climb over them, they would, but more realistically, they would just prevent any food or help from going in and kill anyone that was coming out until you all died or surrendered. So here we have the capital city of the ancient kingdom of Israel surrounded and beginning to die from the inside out. How do we know this? Well, food was so scarce that they're selling and eating, eating donkey's head and dove's poop, not delicacies at all, um, and they were getting desperate. Now, I researched some of this a little bit for those of you nerds out there. Uh, a shekel at that time in the ninth century Israel was about uh, 0.4 ounces or 11 grams uh, of silver. And that much silver is equivalent to maybe about like nine and a half dollars today. But in terms of buying power, it's estimated that to survive in a city at this time, individuals would need to bring in about 22 shekels of silver per year in income. 
So in this particular siege, things were getting so bad in Samaria, you could, if you wanted to, give up three and a half years worth of income for a donkey's head to eat, or three months of income to eat some dove's poop. But it gets crazier. Verse 26, as the king of Israel was passing by the wall, a woman cried to him, help me, my lord and king. The king replied, if the Lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press? When he asked her, what's the matter? She answered, this woman came, this woman said to me, give up your son so that we may eat him today and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him, but she has hidden him. Uh-oh. Like worse than a donkey's head and dove's poop, moms are cooking their sons. But this, this, isn't, this, this one mom isn't even complaining that she had to eat her son. It's like, not, oh my gosh, it's so bad I had to eat my son. It's, oh my gosh, I ate mine, where's yours? Um, she's complaining that she can't find someone else's son. And I'm going to have to give these ladies the benefit of the doubt and hope that their sons maybe had already passed or succumbed to the famine and they didn't first murder their sons to eat them, give them the benefit of the doubt. But regardless, how bad does it have to be for you to look at your kid and be like, this is happening? And the next part is very interesting. Verse 30, when the king heard the woman's words, he tore his clothes, uh, he tore his robes, and as he went along the wall, the people looked at him and they, they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body, which just means he's in mourning. He said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So the king's in mourning, the city is surrounded by the enemy, he's helpless, people are dying, and moms are eating their kids. I can't, and I think a very natural reaction for the king here is to get mad at God. And I say this because he threatens to kill God's prophet at the time was Elisha, the man of God. In fact, the next verses say that the king sent a messenger to Elisha's house to kill Elisha. And he says, this disaster is from the Lord. Should I wait for the Lord any longer? So we have a dying city surrounded by an enemy that's causing the people in the city to unravel. The king can't hold anything together anymore. Now, I'm not saying that each of us have experienced it this bad in our life, but I think we can kind of tap into that idea of life unraveling and wondering where any help is going to come from or how you're going to survive. And, um, and oh man, if, if, uh, if we, what we wouldn't give for some good news in that moment, that everything's going to be all right. Now, that's indeed what Elisha gives next. He gives good news. He says, hey, look, by this time tomorrow, you can buy about 12 pounds of the finest flour for only one shekel. You can buy 24 pounds of the finest barley for, for, for one shekel, right at the front door of the city. Oh, that's, that's great news. But that's also hard news to believe, considering the situations. In fact, one of the king's officers basically says, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Do you see how good news can be received? We understand that, that mindset, don't we? Especially when it comes to faith. I mean, how can I believe in the good news that God is holding me together when the world feels like it's falling apart? How can I trust in God when I've been hurt or betrayed or struggling for so long? How can we say this thing when we experience this other thing? And then the story changes. It's really cool. It takes you outside the city gate to four lepers, and they're sitting around the city, um, and um, they were out there because of their medical condition with, lep with leprosy. They were outcasted from the city because they were unclean, um, even though the whole city was unclean at that point, but whatever. Nevertheless, the story takes this interesting turn. They're basically going over their options on how to survive. They said, well, we could go back into the city and die. Uh, we could stay here and die. 
Or we could head out to the, uh, to the army, uh, to the enemy, and surrender. And if they have mercy on us, great, we'll get some food. And if not, we'll, we'll die anyways. And so they go over all their options, and they decide to go out and meet the army. And hopefully they would let them surrender. In verse 5 in chapter 7, it says, At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and they fled at dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. So wild. The, man who had, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. And then they took silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. But then, once, then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. So let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So the lepers who were just mulling over their options of how they wanted to die, all of a sudden have the best news that they could give their city. That the enemy is defeated and that they're gone. That their salvation has actually come. And what's wild is that they came running back to the city and no one believes them. The city officials were like, no, I think it's a trap. Um, But the lepers know it's not because they were just experiencing all the food and all the drinks and they were recovering. And so they were actually the best people to share the good news because they just experienced it for themselves. And sure enough, eventually the Samaritans check it out and experience the good news themselves too. And God fulfilled the promise that Elijah made that day, that the city was saved, that all those things would be um, at those new prices. Um, They were once dead to rights and now they have a way to live. They were unraveling and now they were held together by the goodness of God. And this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it gives me the best context for what it means to reach people for Christ. It's to express God's love for humans to other humans. Reaching people for Christ is not preaching a good sermon. It's not winning an argument. It's not forcing people to look and sound like you do. It's not a successful marketing campaign. It's not going viral on TikTok or YouTube. It's not reaching people just to attend our church. It's not making money. It's not winning elections and imposing policy. It's not selling Jesus-y merchandise. It's not asking people to turn or burn. It's not keeping count of the souls that you won for Jesus. And it's not a one and done thing. It's expressing God's love for someone to that someone with so much confidence because you've experienced that same love for yourself. That I am held together by the love of Jesus and God can hold you together too. And so how do you do that? How do you share that good news that way? And that's actually a great question that I would love for you to explore with others. Expressing love looks different in all kinds of situations, but I have three principles that maybe you can keep in mind. The first is express God's love first because you've experienced it yourself. Don't be fake with it. People will read right through that. Start, and I suggest that if you haven't, start with reading about what God has done for you in the Bible. Look for ways that he's uh, changed your attitude or he's given you opportunities or he's, um, he's, he's uh, taken like dead relationships and made them alive again. Look for things like that and give credit to God for it. Uh, the second thing is express God's love in a way that makes room for someone in your life regardless of how it's received. 
Don't stop being in their life. Don't stop being their friend. Don't start being their son. Don't stop being their, their mom or, or your dad just because they receive the good news with doubt or skepticism or even anger. Make room for them in your life because, because God loves them as much as God loves you. And the third thing is express God's love contextually. Be with people on their own turf. Listen and ask questions about what's happening in their life. The better you know a person and a person knows you, the easier it is for them to trust that you have good news. And so I have three questions for you this week that you can reflect on them now or later this week by yourself or in your small group, and they're this. Number one, what is the best news that you've ever received and what did it change? Number two, when did you first experience the love of God in your own life? And number three, who is someone you care about that you could reach out to this week and express God's love for them because they could use it? Thank you.